0: Hello and welcome to The Rogers Brief for March 31st, 2023. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Now this is going to be a special edition in a sense of The Rogers Brief. I'm going to be focusing on the release yesterday of the final report of the Mass Casualty Commission into the uh, killings of uh, April 18th and 19th, 2020 in Nova Scotia by Gabriel Wartman. And the report was released yesterday in Truro, and uh, so I was there and I read uh, much of the report as much as I could uh, between yesterday and today. So I'm going to talk about that. Now, for those that aren't uh, regular watchers of The Rogers Brief or listeners, uh, typically these days what I've been doing is on a weekly basis covering you know, five, six, seven news stories of the week that are, have a legal theme as either their primary focus or as a, uh, an aspect of them that I think might be underappreciated or need some explanation. But prior to that, I started off doing these videos uh, because of the Mass Casualty Commission. I was covering it on a daily basis, uh, watched the proceedings, and then would do a daily summary and analysis of what we'd uh, seen and heard, uh, or not seen and heard in some cases. And then I turned that into a final report of my own, which I published a few months ago, called Deficits of Trust. Now, uh, uh, interesting now, some of the same conclusions that I reached were also reached by the commissioners, the Mass Casualty Commission. But whereas I did mine in uh, about some, I think 129 pages, uh, their report was just under 3,000 pages. So if you're looking for a brisk read of much of the same content, uh, then you can uh, look up Deficits of Trust, it's on, uh, you can see it in my Facebook page, uh, f- Twitter feed, uh, wherever, you, uh, wherever you're wherever finding this video, you'll be able to find the links to that uh, e-book if you're interested in something that's a little shorter to read. But the Mass Casualty Commission Report is an interesting read too. It's called Turning the Tide. Uh, now... Maybe not the best metaphor, in a sense, because tides cycle in and out. Uh, so I'm not sure if they appreciated that aspect of it. I read, I did read. There's a little section on why they chose turning the tide, and of course, it's where everything happened here. It's uh, close to the Bay of Fundy, and uh, so the tides are certainly relevant there. Uh, but they're looking to turn the tide on a couple of major aspects. One is policing and the other is domestic violence. So I'm going to get into some of those. And there are other aspects that I think people that are regular watchers and listeners of the Rogers Brief will appreciate hearing too about uh, different conclusions that the commission has reached. Now yesterday in Truro, it was very busy there at the Glengarry, uh, at the at the hotel. At least 300 people there in the room Uh, Lots of uh, family members, participants, they were all there, of course. A lot of politicians there as well, uh, including the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister uh, made an appearance. Actually, (laughs) it's kind of funny, the Prime Minister was sitting behind me, directly behind me, uh, in the room, uh, sort of in the middle of the room. The Premier was there as well. uh, Minister uh, Mendicino, public safety minister, federally, and Minister Frazier, immigration minister, but minister from uh, Nova Scotia, was there as well. Like I said, Premier Houston was there, uh, Tom Taggart, local MLA, local MP Stephen Ellis. I saw him there as well. And then uh, opposition leaders, uh, Liberal Zach Churchill and NDP leader uh, Claudia Chender also uh, present. I'm sure there were others as well. I saw some uh, police leadership there as well. Chief uh, Dan Kinsella of the Halifax Regional Police was present, and uh, Chief Dave McNeil from the Truro Police Service was uh, also present. Actually, I think they were sitting together. So, uh, the presentation was a little less than an hour, it included a video and some tributes to the victims, and and then some remarks from the commissioners, and uh, then that was it. Now, so they didn't get into great detail, of course, with a a 3,000-page report, Uh, but um, the now what is this report? I guess the first point I want to make is that what is the report? It's just a reminder that this report is and the inquiry was set up by the provincial and federal cabinets and so this report goes to them as uh, advice to cabinet about what they should do. But of course it's also advice and the, ca- the commissioners would want it to be seen as advice to all of us as well. So what were the main uh, conclusions? Oh by the way, just a uh, a note from yesterday. I thought the okay. So the remarks, the tone of the remarks from the commissioners was uh, subdued, as and uh, you know, sort of solemn as they they have been throughout the commission hearings. When they left, after you know, making some fairly bold recommendations and remarks, you know, some pointed criticisms of the police things that people may have been surprised in a sense. I was certainly a little surprised at how far they went with their criticism of the police, given that throughout the proceedings they had been really seeming to protect the police in some of their trauma-informed, quote-unquote, you know, procedural decisions about limiting cross-examination, video uh, evidence in some cases without any cross-examination of police officers. So, uh, to, for the commissioners to go as far as they did in criticizing the RCMP, I think probably took some people by surprise. It seemed to have, based on some of the reaction, but there was no reaction in this sense. After the commissioners finished the remarks and left the stage, like there was no applause, there was no real reaction of any kind at the end. And uh, so, anyway, that seems significant. Now, the topics that the commission covered, broadly speaking, were RCMP oversight and culture, policing in Nova Scotia, public alerting, the root causes of gender-based violence, and community safety. They did talk about about what happened, and they didn't go into this much yesterday, but this is in the report, and they go through uh, some of the mistakes made during, you know, just mistakes made during the uh, response. And those mistakes can be kind of themed in two senses, and I covered this in Deficits of Trust, and I think that's, that's why I called it Deficits of Trust. I know that's why I called it, but one was the police did not accept or appreciate information that they were getting from citizens, or they didn't accept it as legitimate. That was one side of the trust issue. The other side was that the police didn't provide information to the public, and so they were criticized heavily for both of those things. But the the report has two main aspects from what I would say and one is a major like a call for major changes to the RCMP now in deficits of trust I called for you know the RCMP to re- be replaced as the policing entity in Nova Scotia my interpretation of the mass casualty Commission report is that they have also effectively called for an end to the RCMP as we know it all right so, Depot, the training, the six month training program in, in Regina, that's going to be gone. So, how, how police officers are trained is going to change into a, like they call it, a three year program, like they do in Finland and other places. So, depot is going to be gone. Increased oversight and transparency. There's some talk about how police boards need to be revitalized and that police should be transparent in their policies and in reacting when things happen and explaining things to the public much more so. That... Uh, domestic violence, gender-based violence, first uh, contact, instead of being with the police, that would be with somebody else, some other non-police organization and, uh, you know, trauma workers, counselors, that sort of thing. So that would be a big difference. And then what they, the sort of practice of the RCMP of putting their new officers in rural detachments as sort of, you know, trial by fire in a sense, or here's how you're going to learn is by being one of the only officers in this large rural area, whatever it may be, that they say should change and it should be uh, you know, new officers starting out in more suburban areas with other officers around where they can learn more from others. And then as they progress in their career, then they would get the responsibility of leading a rural detachment or being in a rural detachment. And then the big thing is, and I want to talk a little bit more about this, is that they, the commission recommended that the provinces... Nova Scotia in particular, but all provinces should review contract policing, and so I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But so many changes to the RCMP, so it would be the you know the RCMP as we know it in name only if these recommendations are followed through upon. So. Listen to the RCMP react to this afterwards, and it really sunk in and drove home why this needs to change. All right, so the RCMP uh, Interim Commissioner, uh, or Assistant Commissioner Dennis Daly here in Nova Scotia, and the new Interim Commissioner uh, nationally were both answering questions, and they really did not do themselves any favors, because so, one of the things the Commission, the Mass Casualty Commission recommended was that RCMP officers should be, and the RCMP as an entity, should be more willing to admit mistakes. So, okay, question from CTV uh, right off the bat is, okay, uh, the Mass Casualty Commission says you should be better at admitting fault. And you've said that you're sorry that people died, but not sorry for anything that the RCMP did. Would you care to do that right now and answer the question. And they said, no, uh, we have not, they answer many, many times. They're the same answer every, to every question. Basically. Well, I haven't read the report. Uh, I'm going to re- review the por- report and study it and, uh, think about it. You know, so there was all these questions, these answers, uh, the CBC, Brett Ruskin asked the question. Well, you've had the report since yesterday. Haven't you read some of it? What do you think? Uh, what could, you know, so no, they hadn't read the report. And it's just amazing in a sense, right? Like what could be more important for these leaders right now than to have read the report and be ready to react to it in public? Well, of course, the public relations side of that is if you haven't read the report yet, you can answer that to every question. You know, you don't have to get into each question like, okay, what about Depot? Well, we have some thoughts about that. And I don't know if that's such a great idea. Or what about this particular fault or that particular, you know, they didn't feel at least that they had to answer those questions. Well, I think that was a big mistake. I think it just showed everybody that was listening to the question and answers, you know, what, this is, this is why, this is why we can't expect the RCMP to change on their own because they keep pushing back and resisting any kind of questioning of their methods, their structure, their culture, any of those things. You know, Lindsay Jones from Globe and Mail asked, you know, well, what about closing depot? And uh, again, uh, the, uh, the commissioner said, well, I haven't read the recommendations, uh, so I'm not familiar with all the recommendations. And she's like, well, it's kind of a big one, you know, don't you have anything to say about it? And no, they don't. So that was a big problem. And I think that was, uh, you know, a very poor choice in the immediate aftermath of the report being released to have... Um, no answers to those questions. And in fact, in the report itself, the Mass Casualty Commission said that the RCMP has done very little in the last two years to uh, reform themselves. Uh, So specific to, and this wasn't really reported on, I didn't see anywhere yesterday. I was reading a lot of the news articles as well as the report itself. So, you know, it was kind of at the end, like they say, okay, provinces should look at how they do contract policing. We know in Nova Scotia that the contract with the RCMP is up in uh, 2032, so it's a ways off, but there is a two-year out clause in it. They could you know, trigger that um, the end of the contract on a two-year basis. That's not mentioned, I don't think, in the report, not that I saw. So what we have in Nova Scotia, as people will be aware, is a patchwork of municipal forces, RCMP forces, And people don't always get along in the Mass Casualty Commission. They didn't uh, contact the Truro or Amherst police forces. They only contacted other RCMP uh, detachments to try to get help. Uh, So that was an issue of just, you know, jurisdictional issues, uh, conflict among police leadership. Uh, The Mass Casualty Commission said that that undermines confidence in policing in Nova Scotia. The other part is police oversight. And they talk about how the commission report talks about how there's very little oversight and that the uh, oversight boards and agencies have very little funding and are not really robust. And so they want that change. Instead of, so in Nova Scotia now, the contract with the RCMP says that it's, you know, the RCMP itself nationally that provides that oversight basically for the RCMP in Nova Scotia. Not a provincial, you know, that's not done provincially, it's done federally. And then uh, the, the province uh, has some oversight boards, but they're not, they're not utilized. So those uh, should be made much more robust. And the standards policing standards in Nova Scotia should be published and should be designed and developed by the province, not, uh, you know, not defer, not defer to the RCMP to provide their standards. And then we have to live with them. Well, each province. And so the Mass Casualty Commission noted that this is taking place in Alberta, in BC, and in the Yukon too, where they're looking at the provincial or, or federal or sorry, or territorial police forces. And so I would suspect the same will take place in Nova Scotia. So all of that is to say, you know, the way that we see the RCMP now and their, their presence throughout the province, that is uh, likely to change significantly if these recommendations uh, are implemented. Okay, a few other things. Alert ready. The alert, public alert system, the uh, you know, a lot of criticism early on and throughout for the RCMP's failure to use the system. We learned in the uh, Commission proceedings that the RCMP had been made aware of the uh, alert ready system several times prior to the shootings but didn't uh, adopt it as a policy and didn't really appreciate the potential usefulness of it. A couple of problems with the alert ready system one is that it is not government owned, and the commission uh, recommends that it should be owned by and controlled by the government. They didn't get into it too much, like in my report. One of the lessons I think was learned from the events was that whoever the highest ranking member, officer on scene might be, should have the authority to issue a public alert. Rather than trying to explain to a supervisor who has to explain to a communications officer who has to explain to somebody else, and then you know, that time lag, the information lag, you know people aren't gonna appreciate the seriousness of it as opposed to somebody on the ground. I think the lowest ranking, or sorry, the closest high ranking officer to the scene should have that authority. They didn't go into that in the report uh, of the Mass Casualty Commission released yesterday, Uh, but what they did say is that public communications uh, people should be on scene for all critical incidents. And uh, they were, you know, talked about how the alert system should be responsive, citizen centered, and developed there should be some much more analysis of how that can work they say it's not a technological solution we shouldn't be thinking of it as a technological issue but rather as a you know a, a policing you know uh, uh, citizen-led or citizen-driven responsive issue anyway so that they, they'll uh there'll be some more work to do on public alerting something that the government will have to uh, develop uh, and they recommend that that be a federal uh, development Firearms. The commission talked about firearms. Now we know that they <laughs> I talked about this last week. There was a report that was issued last week, but it was actually written uh, three years ago about cross-border smuggling between Maine and New Brunswick being a major issue. So that's mentioned in the report. But the other, so that didn't get a lot of attention yesterday. I noticed because, for one reason, I think because it wasn't discussed at all during the proceedings. The cross-border issue, even though that was the way that Wartman got his guns, was smuggling them across the border between Maine and New Brunswick. What they did talk about yesterday and in some of the news reports was the, uh, so they want to tighten up the border. I guess that's one priority area that the commission identified for government. But the other two more immediate changes, I think, uh, that would be made is one is that no uh, firearms should be or could be possessed that have more than five rounds can handle more than five rounds at a time, and the other one was that the government should develop rules on ammunition uh, storage or stockpiling, and uh, you know making sure that people aren't stockpiling large amounts of ammunition in potential anticipation of, of you know a standoff or, or something uh, other, otherwise uh, problematic. The other que- so other questions that came up. The question of political interference, which people following the Commission's work day to day really, I think, mostly found to be a distraction from the main issues. But of course, it caught national attention because the Prime Minister was involved, the Minister of uh, Public Safety, the Commissioner of the RCMP uh, at the time, Brenda Lucky. So the Commission found that her remarks were, quote, ill timed and poorly expressed, uh, and that the sort of infamous, the recorded phone call between the national leadership and the Nova Scotia leadership showed that there was a fraying of the relationship between the national leadership and the Nova Scotia leadership, and also that there was problems identified by the national leadership for the Nova Scotia RCMP leadership team, and that those were legitimate problems, and, you know, that's that's what the phone call was all about, but not political interference or attempted political interference. There was despite that, calls for clarity between, uh, in the relationship between the Minister of Public Safety or the Minister of the Government and the Commissioner of the RCMP. And they used an Australian example where uh, the, any advice that comes from the Minister or requests have to be published, and so in this case they're recommending that if the Minister of Public Safety has advice or requests to the Commissioner of the RCMP on operational or other matters, that that advice or question be published in the Canada Gazette, which is a government publication anybody would have access to read and then brought up in Parliament as well. So there would be a lot more transparency to that relationship. Other questions that came up, uh, whether Wartman was an informant. And the suspicion, of course, arose from the large $475,000 cash withdrawal from the uh, Brinks location in Burnside, and uh, some other questions about his relationship with certain police officers. The Mass Casualty Commission has come out and said definitively, no, he was not an informant, there was no evidence of that, and they can say, uh, they conclude factually that he was not. I don't think everybody's going to be quite satisfied with that, but uh, that's their conclusion. The second part uh, related to that, though, is a question of whether Wortman was involved in drug trafficking or organized crime or a combination thereof. The Commission is not able to say. They don't have enough evidence. They didn't have evidence to say for sure that he was, but unlike the informant question, didn't feel like they had enough evidence to say that he wasn't. And so uh, I think there is certainly, and they mention this, a fair amount of circumstantial evidence that would suggest that probably he was involved in drug trafficking and organized crime but they uh, the commissioners didn't feel comfortable that they would be able to make that conclusion based on the evidence that they received well part of the reason they didn't receive that evidence is they didn't seek it out and dig into that uh, it would seem so uh, that's sort of a. An un, unfinished aspect of this, or unexplored, underexplored element of this. So, the other major, so the policing was the major topic. I've covered some of the uh, sort of related but maybe um, less extensively discussed topics. The other big one, though, was the issue of domestic violence, gender based violence, family violence. Uh, This, if the recommendations, and these are similar to the recommendations that I made in my report, if these recommendations uh, come to pass, this might be a Bay of Fundy level turning of the tide. Because uh, domestic violence is a big issue. It's uh, probably one of the, maybe the most prevalent, uh, you know, issue of violence in the criminal court system in Nova Scotia and throughout Canada, probably throughout the world problem with this case unlike with the police issues where there were factual foundations for all of the issues that were discussed uh, and all of the mistakes you know there's there's evidence on that it was tested much of it was subject to cross-examination uh, not all of it of course but enough that a person could make conclusions on it the problem with this other part though this domestic violence was the evidence from Miss Banfield was not subject to cross-examination, wasn't tested in the same way other evidence was. So that's an independent problem. But I will say that despite that, well, first of all, it was in the mandate that was given from the provincial and federal government, so the commission had to look at this anyway. Domestic violence and how that's treated. But I would say despite the fact that there's no Or an insufficient factual basis for examining it in this case, because in my mind it still hasn't been established that this case was, uh, you know, dominated by or or the the main element of this uh, these series of killings was not uh, domestic or gender-based violence. It doesn't appear factually established, but the. Changes that might emerge in how domestic violence and gender-based violence is treated by the court systems, if these recommendations are followed, uh, makes it worthwhile, I guess, to have made the analysis. Now, a few things. First of all, the commission talks about the manipulation of Lisa Banfield and uh, how the police treated her and how that will make women less likely to report, because in this case, Ms. Banfield gave her report right away to the police. She was cooperative with them sat down for interviews and was treated by the police and so legitimately uh, no doubt felt that she would be considered a victim and a witness not a suspect because she was never given a charter warning she was never told hey you're a suspect you should have a lawyer here this is serious stuff on your part you know be careful what you say like none of that warning was given to her as it would be for any other witness or sorry any other suspect so but then she was, she was charged eventually, you know, based on some of the stuff she told. So what does that tell other women? If you report and you say too much and you say the wrong thing, then all of a sudden the, the police will flip the switch on you and they'll charge you. And so that is likely to have a, a negative effect on the, you know, the likelihood that anybody else would report a serious domestic violence issue or any kind of domestic violence issue. Now, what the report goes into more so, which I think will be significant if government decision-makers digest this properly, is the changes to the criminal court system. Now, what they identify in the report is a disconnect between women's needs and the justice system. And I think primarily it's the mandatory arrest and charging policies by the province. This isn't in the criminal code, but this is the, so, you know, Criminal code has assault and, and all of the, the crimes identified, but it's a provincial government policy through the public prosecution service that says, uh, you know, if the police hear a uh, allegation, they shall charge. If there is a charge, you shall prosecute. And there's no negotiations, there's no, you know, there's no restorative justice. There's no nothing. You charge, you prosecute, and you take it all the way through. And this has some problems. It first of all, it takes away the victim's agency or autonomy. You know, the, the victim may, you know, want to have some decision-making input or, uh, you know, some not authority but at least uh, significant input into that. Well, this takes that away. Uh, it can draw criminal charges on a spouse can draw unwanted uh, child protection scrutiny from uh, you know social services which is particularly a problem for marginalized women uh, women in marginalized circumstances any kind of a criminal charge puts women in an elevated danger of escalated violence that's the time when violence can take place further If uh, charges are being laid and people are upset and it just escalates things further. So that's an independent problem in a sense. And then there's the, you know, people, many people want to heal the relationship and learn from whatever incident and then continue the relationship. And this uh, pro-charge, pro-arrest policy diminishes the chance of healing a relationship. So instead... It could be replaced instead of, all right, police take the information, police charge, Crown prosecutes. By the way, in almost all those cases, the guy who is charged has to leave the family home. And so he's not, you know, not there for support or, you know, whatever to be part of the family. It adds expenses. It can take months sometimes to have those conditions changed or have a, a matter resolved so that the family can reunite. And so that's a big problem. So instead of that, conceptually, you can imagine, all right, you, instead of reporting to a police officer, you report to a counselor or to some trauma worker. I could talk you through some of these things. In very serious cases, of course, the, and if criminal charges are appropriate, it goes that way. Otherwise, you could have that person be offered counseling, offered a place to stay temporarily, and then with... Uh, healing opportunities and you know, an ability to learn and, and change and improve, then you have families who are then a better family as a result of the, the treatment or whatever counseling. So it seems like a major change in, in mindset on the enforcement side, but it's something where you know, women are much, would be much more likely to report under those circumstances where they know that, all right, things are going to get better if I report things instead of things getting worse and more expensive and uh, more risk of violence. So we'll see, we'll see if those changes. I mean, there's lots of work here. The uh, commissioners in sort of their closing urged everybody to, uh, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel and work on these recommendations and there'll be lots to digest uh, lots of people reading these reports and working on uh, committees and uh, you know, and the commission says do this quickly. They set deadlines to have you know committees set up by May, with mandates and work getting going by September. So uh, they want people to move quickly while things are still fresh in everybody's mind and there's still some public uh, you know public momentum for the changes. So we'll see. We'll see how that comes along. And uh, there's still. Lots more to digest. Uh, from my side, I'm going to be looking more into the details of what factual findings have been uh, included in the report. I went through many of them last night, but uh, not all. So there's more to read and more to uh, more to digest. But I thought I wanted to bring you right away uh, some of the major findings, and particularly those in the policing and uh, gender-based violence realms, which are really the ones where the major changes might take place here. So. Uh, that's uh, that's the report for this week. I'll be back next week. I'll probably have some more thoughts on this. And by the way, in the meantime, uh, Sunday night I'll be on with Jordan Bonaparte and Paul Polango, who was there yesterday as well, uh, talking about the uh, report on the Nighttime podcast, which is live on YouTube at uh, 9.15 uh, p.m. Sunday night. And so I'll we'll be uh, looking forward to uh, having that discussion with Jordan and Paul. Uh, lots to talk about there. I'll get their thoughts. And then, be back next week with uh, probably some more analysis of this and i'll get back into the uh, regular weekly analysis i uh, see there was a verdict in the gwyneth paltrow uh skiing case uh released yesterday as well so lots of lots of other uh, cases to cover but uh, this was a big one that i'd been covering for uh, many months so i wanted to dedicate this episode just to the final report that was issued yesterday so Uh, Until next time, I want to thank everybody for watching. Uh, Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.